Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm a speech-language pathologist and assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. In this episode of the podcast, I have a conversation with three members of the ANCDS Board Certification Committee about the board certification process and what reviewers are looking for in submitted cases. You can find details about the board certification process at ancds.org. Well, everybody, welcome to the ANCDS podcast. We're talking about the board certification uh, process today. Uh, my name is Michael Beal. I'm an assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. Um, Edie, why don't we start off having you introduce yourself? Just let us know where you're at. Um, sure. Yeah. I'm Edie Babbitt. I'm at the Rehab Institute of Chicago. Um, I was board certified in 2008, and I've been on the committee for about two years now. Okay. Great. And Gail. Hi, I'm Gail Ramsberger, and I'm on the faculty at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I was certified when we first started ANCDS and served on this committee, I think, several times um, over the years. And Katie. Um, my name is Katie Atkinson, and I'm a clinical supervisor in the Communication Disorders Department at Central Michigan University. Um, I've been a certified speech-language pathologist for about 30 years and have been board certified since 2009. Great. And Katie, you're the, the chair of the board certification committee right now. Can you tell us just briefly what board certification is? Sure. Um, board certification is uh, a means of demonstrating that you have advanced clinical knowledge and expertise in an area related to a neurologic communication disorder or different neurologic communication disorders. We have a process of you can apply for board certification in adults only or you can um, apply for the process of being certified in child neurologic disorders only or you can be dual certified in both adult and children. And the board certification process is outlined on the ANCDS website, but um, to give a brief overview, uh, for eligibility um, board certification, the first step is actually applying for board certification, and there is um, an online form on the uh, ANCDS website, or you can download and print the paper form and mail it to the ANCDS office. And there are various stipulations to be eligible for board certification, and of course the main one is that you have to have the triple C's from ASHA. You have to have a minimum of five years full-time equivalent clinical experience with neurologic communication disordered clients. You do need to submit a CV or resume to show that what your clinical experience has been in and to uh, document that you have had that neurologic clinical experience. 
Uh, there's the CEC form that um, you need to complete that tells us how many um, continuing education credits or CEUs you've achieved over the years. And then you do need three letters of recommendation in order to apply for board certification. And they need to be from healthcare providers who know you firsthand. And at least one must be a speech language pathologist. For example, when I applied for board certification, I had two speech language pathologists for my letters of recommendation, and then one was a doctor, um, physiatrist in, in physical rehabilitation who I had worked with at a previous employment setting. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's always the money. We do need a, a check, and that information is also available on the website. Mm -hmm. um, the certification process currently is as soon as your application is accepted by the chair of the committee, who currently is myself, we as the chair, we review your application and then email you if that's been accepted. At the time that we receive and accept your application, the clock begins ticking. And from that date, and you would be notified of that via email, but from that date you have two years to complete the board certification process, which does involve writing two case studies, but you cannot start the second case study until the first one has been accepted by a um, committee, which is a committee of three people from the certification committee as a whole, who review and comment upon your case study. We have three levels of review for the case study, where one is a, a pass um, upon first submission. The second step is you need to revise it, but we'll consider you know, looking at it again and um, possibly considering it a pass after the revisions are completed. And then unfortunately, we do have a third step, which is does not meet standards. And if that should happen, if you should receive notice that you did not meet standards, then you can submit a new case study as long as you are within your, your um, deadline period. Mm -hmm. But the third process is once you've passed the two case studies, the third step once you reach that is an oral presentation or oral defense of one or both of your case studies. And typically we try to schedule those at a time when your three-person committee can be physically present with you. Um, most commonly we do it during um, the ANCDS scientific meeting um, or just before that or during um, ASHA or if we have to then we set up another time. But most of the time to get everybody together because we all come from different parts of the United States. We try to set it up during a, a group meeting such as the ANCDS meeting in November. Right. So, uh, so when, when, when people submit their case, then those cases go off to three uh, reviewers. Right. Yes, that is true. Um, there is a nine-person certification committee, basically, and once the chair has received that case study, he or she then will usually seek out three people from the certification committee to be on this person's review committee, it's called. And these three folks who are board certified themselves will provide constructive written feedback 
regarding the case study itself and directions and guidance for what sections have to be included in the case study are also provided on the website mm -hmm. um, as well as some guidance for how to select patients for the case study and what content areas must be addressed as part of the case study. Right, right. Once um, the chair receives back the feedback from the three committee members, then he or she can forward that on to the applicant. The review committee remains anonymous until the day of the actual oral defense. So at no time does the um, applicant know who's on their review committee. But once the um, applicant receives, or once the chair, excuse me, receives the written feedback from the review committee, then he or she can send it on to the applicant for their perusal, I guess you could say, of the feedback and see if there are areas that they need to improve upon. I am not aware of any studies that have passed on the first time through. And I think you can even speak to that, Mike. And um, I don't know about you, Edie, um, back when you submitted yours, if it was accepted right out of the gate or if revisions were required on your case studies. But I do know that mine, mine required revision, and uh, so the feedback from the committee itself was very helpful in knowing what was expected of me when I did submit a revised um, study to them. Yes, my yeah, I required, uh, I had to revise my case and and the reviewers asked some really interesting questions, and and that was that was helpful, not just uh, helping me write a passing case, but I think they were they were helpful for me to understand the case uh, more, prompted me to think in certain directions, um, and that was useful. You know, I know that uh, people listening to this who are considering board certification probably one of their primary concerns is to have some idea of how hard this is. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, how hard is it to get board certification? What's expected of people? Because this isn't really just submitting a clinical report, is it? No, it's definitely not a, a clinical report. Um, in fact, what the committee the certification committee as a whole or even the three-person review committees that come from that whole are looking for is a publication quality case study but not necessarily having the experimental rigor that you would have. Um, this doesn't have to be a multiple baseline design or, or that kind of thing but it is a single subject case study based on certain therapy technique that was applied. We look at your ability to what assessments were utilized with the client as well as differential diagnosis. How did you come up with that diagnosis based on the test you used or why didn't you use X assessment instead or how could you determine that this was uh, nomic aphasia versus uh, Broca's aphasia, which I know that's pretty obvious because they're different types of aphasia. But, you know, that's what your committee is going to look for, is your critical thinking of how did you come up with that diagnosis? And then what treatment did you choose that has evidence behind it as far as 
either that treatment being published in the research or finding the supporting documentation for why or why you did not do certain techniques, procedures, etc. There's got to be a, a process of, of critical thinking. So the applicant really needs to look at when they write their report, not writing it as a clinical report, but writing it with a, a, an eye almost as if they're the third party reading it saying, did I cover all of my bases here and are there any sections that you know, are more just my bias, but I don't have anything supporting that section or that um, information that I presented. So mm -hmm. I, I always, I, I try to tell applicants who send email questions to me, read it as if you are not the person who knows this, this patient and were all questions answered about them. If this was a new patient coming to you, um, would we know from your case study what you did and why? Yeah. Well, of course, as you mentioned, there are guidelines posted on ANCDS, the website, in terms of the different content areas that <clears throat> need to be covered and some indication of what's expected in each of those content areas. I think it might be interesting since everybody here is involved in in reviewing these cases for us to kind of just briefly talk about kind of what in terms of what's coming off the top of your head what do you what do you look for in a passing case overall gail could you g give us a sense of when you're reading a case what's what do you what are you looking for i think when i read a case what i'm looking for is i want to see that the applicant can demonstrate the knowledge and scholarship that should be driving clinical decisions. Now, having said that, I think we all recognize that rarely do we get to practice and can we present for this or a perfect case. There are lots of constraints given the clinical settings that we work in, um, patient variables, all this. But when I'm looking at a case, what I want to see is what are all of the diagnostic and treatment options that you considered? Why did you choose the one that you did? What were the constraints and how did that influence which? But I really want to know that you knew. I don't want to hear just what happened. I want to hear what was in your head behind the scenes. Well yeah. said, Gail. I did all that. I second that remark exactly. That That is exactly what I consider too when I'm looking at the um, which is why I, I ask applicants to not, they need to depersonalize what is going on within this report and not just say, well, you know, I was the clinician and, and this is what I did and it's the right thing to do, but why? Why is it right? You know, you're going to have people reading this report who don't know this patient, don't have a clue, and going back to, to Mike, since I was on his review committee, we had questions for him and he probably thought when he read these questions, why would they ask that? But you have to try to, as an applicant, you have to try to put yourself in the shoes of what are other people reading and how are they perceiving this report and, and am I explaining and justifying and showing critical thinking in all areas that are expected of me? Not yeah, just sure. I administered this test and yeah. did this therapy and the patient got better and they were discharged because of that. 
Um, we, we all understand, all of us here today understand productivity demands or um, insurance limitations, but there is still a way to show that you used excellent critical thinking and critical analysis of why you did what you did with your patient. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, and uh, Katie, I think uh, an important point here is the um, it's in some ways, it's not necessarily about I got the diagnosis right. Um, I did the right treatment, right? This is not a multiple choice test kind of thing. Right. Because actually, in, in my case, I got the diag. I think I got the diagnosis wrong. Now I had a I had a pretty complicated case. This was a person with a very specific reading impairment, and I struggled even to find an example in the literature of a case that was similar to him, both in lesion location and symptoms. But in my case, I, I acknowledged that my initial diagnosis was not what I thought it actually was after reflection. And, and I think that you mentioned kind of, or Gail, you mentioned that we don't want people just saying, well, I did this and then I got this, this was the response, I did this, this was the response. That doesn't really demonstrate uh, understanding in, in a way there there needs to be some kind of I guess demonstration of your thinking on the page Edie what do you look for similar to what other people have said you know in some of the case studies that I've reviewed I, that I wanted more information were ones that were presented as here's the patient I treated and this is what I treated, and then they got discharged. I do want to see that process of why they picked one treatment. I don't want to see every single treatment and goal that that, that, that person worked on, but why this, did they pick this one particular treatment, and what was the outcome from, from that treatment? Um, so I've seen a case study where they talked about what they did for the apraxia, what they did for the reading, what they did for the, the naming, what they did for AAC, and that's a clinical report. Um, so I'd like to see why did you pick this naming treatment, and maybe it didn't necessarily work. Then you want to see the thought process of why didn't it work, and what else could that therapist have done. So it's then moving on beyond that, what else could I have done um, differently as part of that self-reflection and kind of self-analysis as a clinician. Right. And that's the thing that's not really in a, a clinical report, is it? I mean, in a clinical Correct. report, we say, this is what we did and, and this is the results. And oftentimes, there's not even a lot of reflection in these reports except maybe in the impression section or something like that. Katie, I think, I think go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, Gail. I, I think one of the things that this brings up is that applicants don't need to wait until they have the perfect case. Yeah. You know, the case in which they were able to do everything that they can support um, from, from the literature um, because no case is going to be perfect. But 
but any case you can talk about you know in a perfect world this is what I would have done mm -hmm. but here are the constraints I had to work on and here's my reason for choosing this approach and even acknowledging that there may not be any evidence but here's my rationale for why I'm thinking that this is the best course of action for this patient. Well, well let me um, pose a question to everybody, because, Gail, I think you kind of brought up something that I, th I think is interesting. Does a passing case have to be a case where the person got better because of the treatment? No. No, no. And I'm sorry, I, I lost my audio and visual and everything for a minute there, so I was trying to get reconnected. But So I missed most of Gail's section that she discussed, so I hope I'm not repeating somebody else. But um, no, I don't think so, because in, in the case of my client, the, the case study I submitted, it was a person who really didn't make major improvement quantitatively, but qualitatively, and quality of life improved significantly for this person which I felt was just as important. And and I don't know if this has been brought up, so of course um, let me know. But what I've been finding and, and my predecessor before me found is that you don't have to submit these really intense complex cases in order to meet the qualification for an acceptable or a passing case study. It doesn't have to be some very rare disorder or it, it can be someone who did get better, who did not get better. In the case of my client, unfortunately, um, when you talk about discharge of the client, in my case, the client had passed away. But, you know, when I did a, a self-critique or a self-analysis of the entire case from beginning to end as part of my case study, I realized there were other things I, sh I could have done. Would this person have made huge gains if I had done something different? Maybe, maybe not. But um, I want listeners to know that the case does not have to be an extremely complex, rare disorder <laughs> that um, we have no evidence out there to support what you're doing or you're struggling with that. Um, so no, clients get better, some don't. It happens and as long as you can justify all of that in your um, case study, no, the client doesn't have to get better. I can attest to the fact that, because uh, like I said, my case was really unusual and I think uh, pretty complex and about halfway through, writing that case, I was really wishing that I had cho chosen someone else to write about, but because of the time I had spent on it, you know, I was, I, I had to, I had to go through with it. I'm curious then, I mean, let's say you had a case that was uh, persons with Parkinson's disease, uh, hypokinetic dysarthria, and the SLP applies the kind of the standard of care out there for a lot of people with Parkinson's disease, uh, Lee Silverman voice treatment. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wonder, can cases be too, um, too simple? And I'm not suggesting that working with persons with hypokinetic dysarthria and Parkinson's disease are simple, straightforward necessarily, but I can imagine where a, a case like that, 
someone might just say, well, you know, here was the diagnosis. This is the standard of treatment. I applied the standard of treatment. This is how the person did. I think there still can be some evaluation of um, were there any modifications that occurred during that treatment um, given that patient that they had right in front of them because not every patient is the same. Right. So there still could be some self-analysis of what was done during the, that treatment phase, an evaluation of was there something that could have been done differently and a justification of why this was that, that right, correct approach mm -hmm. for that patient. Right, right. Well, and, and, and Edie, I think you also bring up kind of a good point, and that is that a uh, high standard of care is kind of really understanding a lot of the influences on a, on a person's treatment course. And, mm -hmm. and a, a lot of the different influences on their performance, right? In other right. words, with every right. individual, they've got a medical history, they've got a social history, um, they've got uh, issues perhaps with motivation for different reasons. These are all things that need to be attended to. Right, right. And in, in, in the case of Parkinson's, is there medication influencing treatment? Right, right, yeah. Who, Katie, uh, yeah. or, or anybody, who should consider board certification? You know, I think anyone who has the, the interest and the experience in neurologic communication disorders and wants to um, progress toward board certification should consider it. it. It does not have to be someone who has a PhD. Um, now, well, I actually, to, to step in there, um, no. before I fully considered or jumping into the, the PhD process, I did the board certification because I felt like this would be a step in my career that would show I do have advanced knowledge without having to jump into the PhD hmm. track. Mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm a master's level clinician, um, have never gone on for my PhD, and mm -hmm. yet to me um, back in 2000, Five, six. When I when I applied to the process, it was just a, a professional desire for me to take that clinical experience and clinical knowledge and be able to demonstrate that I was uh, that I had advanced um, my career to be. And and it, this was just adult neurologic communication disorders have always been a great clinical research and clinical experience love of mine. Um, I'm now at a university setting, but I was a practicing clinician for 12 years before I came to the university setting. And and although I did not seek board certification until I'd been in the university setting for a while, it's something that was always in the back of my mind. And, and I don't know if we should name drop here, but it was actually something that I wanted to consider after I was at a um, conference or workshop that Edith Strand was running. 
on um, neurology and neuroanatomy and and seeing I think she dropped out. Katie again. <laughs> well, we'll wait for uh, you. Uh, I could also... Yeah, go ahead, Edie. Oh, I was going to say, um, additionally, I felt like this was a recognition that few people applied for. And so that gave it a little more, I don't know how to say it. Um, Respect? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gail, go ahead. Um, you asked the question about who should apply. I think one of the things that's really important is that we're looking for clinical expertise. We're not looking for clinical experience. And so, you know, the clinician who says, well, you know, I've been working with this population for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I'm, I should be ready to do this. Not necessarily, because if you do the same thing with every patient, or if you work under great constraints and you never think about the greater picture, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have the expertise. And it, the expertise is really about all the knowledge that sometimes you can't apply in your practice, but you've got it. And maybe it's even what, what makes you uncomfortable every day with what you're actually able to do in clinical practice versus what you know um, the literature suggests um, it, so I guess I would really emphasize it's, it's expertise we're looking for, not experience. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? I mean, because I think that the constraints that people are on in terms of the amount of time they have to assess and whatnot, that because of those constraints, I think we actually need, just for argument's sake here, more knowledge more skill because we have to our decisions have to be more accurate more efficient you know i know for me it was about 15 years of practice before uh i started to consider board certification you know and i think it it took me anyways that long to to feel like and i, I and i you know we say five years is enough experience and different people are different. I don't want to suggest that you need to wait 15 years to become, to become board certified, but it is a, it is a high standard. And, and Edie, I mean, I think as you implied, it's, um, it's a certification that's worth having. I, I feel proud to, to have mm -hmm. those initials after my name because I do think it signifies a standard of of practice. Right, right. Lost my audio again, but <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Um, oh my God, got some pragmatic issues here. She keeps stopping in the middle of something. That's Sorry. all right. That's all right. Um, so, Katie, we were just kind of, I think, talking a bit about. Uh, who a good candidate is and and Gail was pointing out that it's it's not just experience and I think actually there's it's it's easy to confuse experience with skill or knowledge in the sense that I, th I think it's I think it's natural or intuitive for us to think that as clinicians that we just get better the more 
time we spend doing it. But, mm. you know, that's not always the case. I think there's, I think you can also make the case that if you just have book knowledge and you don't have many, many hours sitting across the table from a person and struggling with how to help somebody, that you're yeah. also at a certain deficit. Um, that's a very good point. Yeah. But, but they have to, to both be there. Um, okay. So we've kind of talked in general about um, what makes a, a good case, the kinds of clinicians who might want to consider applying for board certification. Uh, I think it might be helpful if we get into some specifics about what we are often looking for. And if you go onto the ANCDS website uh, under the section that describes what needs to be covered on the case study, there are the uh, different content areas. There's also this basic requirement that the case be publication worthy. And, and I hope this doesn't scare off any SLPs who've never published. I had never published when I submitted my case. Nor We're had not, I. I. Yeah. No, I hadn't either. I really haven't even so. published since. Um, I mean, I've done presentations at um, conferences, but not any published studies or anything. Yeah. So I, I think that that statement there is just kind of trying to paint a picture of a of a, a a standard of quality of writing and things like that before we get into the into the content areas and the specifics in those areas in terms of overall writing writing style etc what are you all looking for definitely apa format uh -huh. um and uh, correct use of citations, um, references, uh, more, in my, when I look, I mean, if they're using references that are 50 years old, um, unless this is a tried and true method that nobody has ever um, published something better, you know, I think the references need to be what I call current when I and I love you know within the last 10 years but if they do use an older um, reference justify it you know why you know is there an updated version of this article or research that's been published or that kind of thing I'm a big and, and my graduate students would tell you this I I really focus in on correct punctuation um, grammar making sure that you have the correct gender. I've even seen, you know, they're talking about Mr. X and yet she pops up for the pronoun use um, within the, uh, a lot of proofreading. Be very, very careful. You know, use, use a variety of vocabulary that's professional. Unfortunately, in, in some reports and um, or uh, some studies that have been submitted, there's a lot of vernacular or slang expressions that are used um, rather than professional wording. So that, in a, in a nutshell, those are some things that I look for. 
Yeah, I noticed that too, that there, there is, there does tend to be, particularly since these days we're all pushed towards writing short reports. We don't get much time to write our reports. And I think that tends to move us towards a particular style of writing that's very kind of abbreviated uh, in a way. And, and I see that transitioning into some of the cases rather than using more standard narratives that clinicians sometimes slip into this very brief, minimalistic clinical way of writing in their case studies, which I think is probably a direction they don't want to go. Edie, any, anything that you, you... No, no, I think that covers um, some of the thoughts that I've had. Studies that don't seem up to par are the ones that are more informal and... Right, so, so the, the kind of the, the quality of the citations and references that people are using sometimes are an issue also, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, yeah. I think uh, I, I asked some of the other committee members who aren't on this call to just send me some of their observations about areas of weakness in some of the case cases. And I think a couple people mentioned an over-reliance on um, weaker forms of evidence. For example, book chapters or maybe even ASHA leader articles, um, advance articles, mm -hmm. as, as opposed yeah. to peer-reviewed, published um, information. Gail, any observations on the, in terms of writing style, etc.? You know, we've talked a lot about what it is that we look for as reviewers, and I think as, as um, an applicant, it's really helpful if you organize your document um, in a way that and maybe use some headings to help the reviewers actually see where it, in your document are the is the content that we've said that we're looking for. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, if you're in your section where you're talking about treatment, you know, have a section that talks about what you did, but also have a section that talks about what the literature suggests, and then another section that you clearly identify with. But this was the the limitations under which I was operating, and this was my rationale for making mm -hmm. the decision that I did. So. Don't, I think the more you make the, the document transparent for the content that we're looking for as reviewers, it's going to help the reviewers. Yeah, and yeah. It might actually help you in writing your, your, case, your case study as well. Right. Yeah, and some of the other committee members had mentioned uh, organization and organization. Now, you can, and, and in some ways I think it's a good idea for applicants to take the content areas that ANCDS outlines and use that as uh, the major headings for your yeah. case. But within those uh, main sections, you've got some freedom to do some more organizing and kind of helping your yourself and your reader 
understand, you know, the flow of your ideas. I, th I think another thing I notice is besides not always using good quality evidence is uh, sometimes candidates will make statements and not provide an in-text citation, you know, and I think it's, Im it's important for us to remember that when we make statements about clinical facts, that in general, we want to have some citation to, to back that up. In other words, if I say in my report, and I'm reviewing the neurology, and this individual had a left a posterior inferior lesion from a stroke. And I say that this is consistent with my diagnosis of a brochusophagia, right? Then, yeah, I think, you know, most of us kind of understand that a left posterior inferior frontal lobe lesion is consistent with a brochusophagia, right? That might be common knowledge, but a citation there is still, I think, necessary when you make that kind of uh, a statement. And also- I agree. Yeah, I do too. And I if mean, I jump in, um, I think it's important. What what I've seen in, in many of these submissions over the past year that I've been the chair of the certification committee is, uh, at times, acronyms or abbreviations are used without the full name of the treatment technique or the the assessment name and not all of these acronyms are universally understood and so I think it's important that once again going back to the transparency don't just tell me you did the BDAE or example for example you know put that name in there the um, citation for it, et cetera, um, and then use the abbreviation if you'd like or the acronym. But once again, just don't get too too casual in your writing and assume that everybody knows what. Um, I, I saw a couple uh, studies that came through where I understood the abbreviation, but another reviewer did not and said, I don't know what you mean by you know, XYZ, for example, as your acronym. What What is that? And then they didn't explain the reason why XYZ was chosen, for example, or couldn't justify it. It just, hey, it's what we had in our materials library, so that's what I went with, you know, mm. and that's not high quality um, writing as far as that goes. Right. And, and that's, again, that kind of refers to moving away from just writing a clinical report and writing something, again, that is publication worthy where you do need to define your acronyms um, for your reader. Why don't we uh, move on to the, the content area? So the first content area is the relevant history. Uh, Katie, wh yeah. what do you look for when you're reading a case in that relevant history section? Well, I'm, I'm always interested in seeing that the person has identified what I call the demographics. Um, it, it can be their, their race or their culture, um, of course, gender. It can be maybe the age group the person is in. Level of education, I think, is very important to include in this um, section. 
if not mandatory as far as that goes, um, previous employment or current employment if the person is um, not retired but this neurological event happened. Uh, I'm probably missing something. But um, those are the things that I look for. And of course the what when this event happened or when they were taken to the hospital or if it's an acute event kind of thing. I want to know when it happened. So how long ago basically. And when did this uh, candidate begin seeing that person? Are we looking at a chronic disorder or something that is much more acute? Right, right. Gail? Hi, Gail. <laughs> I, I add that in addition to those facts, I want to see a reflection on those facts. So if you mention their age, give me something from the literature that tells me whether or not age is a factor that we can expect to affect outcome or um, the selection of assessment tools or whatever. Um, if the person has a hearing impairment, how might that influence my decisions further along the way? So I want a reflection on all of those facts. Um, and also, what ones don't matter? Yeah. Right. yeah, well, and that's part of the challenge of writing this case is you do have a word limit. You know, I think that's where the diagnostic skill comes into play is, is that you know, the candidate kind of recognizes which factors are important to follow up on and not just, you know, put on the page and which ones aren't. Edie, do you have anything to, to add? Yeah, I, I would also mention something about not getting too specific, um, just for privacy issues. Um, I've seen a case study where the person's actual job was listed and other demographic information, the person could be identifiable. Right. That's um, great. So, you know, that's just an, something to keep in mind. Yeah. And on the NCDS page, it mentions that uh, the history has to be HIPAA compliant. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like to know if there's any pre-morbid um, conditions that are current are affecting current status. Um, you know, was there a prior CVA or um, how many motor vehicle accidents was this person in where a traumatic brain injury was sustained? You know, that kind of thing. So I just wanted to add that. that I'd like to know if there's any kind of contributing pre-morbid conditions. Yeah. Before moving on, I'll just say that this relevant history section, I think, is often the place where uh, candidates will put down uh, acronyms without outlining them. Yeah. The, you know, the, the medical history will be, you know, HTN, you know, yeah, uh, CAD, yeah. things like that, rather than hypertension, coronary artery disease, etc. So, um, neurologic uh, considerations. So, I'll just read. Uh, the first sentence from the instructions here, this section includes a discussion regarding the neurologic diagnosis and presumed underlying anatomical and physiological substrates, along with a commentary on the relationship between these substrates and the clinical signs presented by the patient. Katie? 
I seem to be choosing you to start off, start us off. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, you know, when I read this, and, and sometimes I, um, I struggle with seeing it from another perspective. I think this is pretty self-explanatory, but um, I, I know in, in my case of, of my case study when I present, and, and for listeners who haven't gone through the application process but are considering it, you'll hear Edie and Mike and I talk about my case study in the singular form because we were under different um, procedures in back in our day of where we had to take a written exam and then submit one case study so please understand for those of you listening that now it's two case studies but what we're discussing today will apply to both as far as what we expect to see in the case studies and or um, the different sections and the definitions of the sections. So I just wanted to clarify that if anybody's saying, well, why does she keep using the singular when it's now two case studies? So right, that's right. my reason. That's but back in, in my day of um, submitting a case study under the neurologic considerations, my patient at the time didn't have I didn't have access to CT scans or any kind of neuroimaging because she was actually coming to our university clinic chronic. Her stroke had occurred many years prior um, and that information was not available. So I needed to justify why was I saying that she had a certain type of aphasia when we didn't have the actual view of the localization in the brain itself. Mm -hmm. And so we as your review committee like to see if you have the neuroimaging results available that's great but do understand sometimes two people's communication behaviors or assessment results don't always line up with what was seen on the MRI I don't want to get into it too much but sure. you know sometimes patients don't fit their brain image picture and so right. you need to be able to justify that by your neurologic considerations um, discussion. You know, if, mm -hmm. if the person had that frontal cortex CBA um, in the left hemisphere but doesn't have a Broca's aphasia because maybe there's um, some crossed aphasia going on here, maybe their right hemisphere is the language dominant, you need to be able to justify that um, as well. So neurologic considerations, we have an expectation of what you would see on brain imaging studies, but not everybody lines up with that in the real world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's my um, yeah. discussion there. I like to see justification of why you are saying this person has a certain communication disorder. Anyone else want to add anything <laughs> to that? Edie, no? Gail? Uh, maybe. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, um, I think it dovetails sort of right into the next section, which I think is the, the medical history and the assessment decisions that you're making. Yeah, assessment right? methods. Yeah, yeah, assessment methods, yeah. test results. So, so one of the things that I like to see is, you know, what, what was the relevant medical history? And then given that, what are your diagnostic hypotheses? And really important here that I'm saying multiple. We don't yeah. go in saying, oh, I have a hypothesis that this broke his aphasia. Right. Um, you know, what are all the things that this could um, indicate? And then what information do I need to, so this is a discussion, right? This isn't what you did. This is 
what's the information I would need in order to be able to differentially diagnose all those possibilities? And then I want to hear about what did you do and what would be sort of the perfect way to have done this. So right. you know, maybe you didn't have a certain ability, you know, tool available to you, mm-hmm. or maybe you only had 20 minutes in which to do your assessment, and so this is what you did. But I also want to know that you know what would have been the ideal methodology to go about this. Um, and then how did you take your results to rule out and rule in some of those diagnostic possibilities? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that gets at what Katie was just saying, you know, if, if you have some lesion information and now you had some diagnostic hypotheses, but in fact the behaviors that you're seeing aren't consistent with that's like, you don't just ignore that, that's like, you really talk about that. That's right, yep. Yeah, yeah. I, maybe I, the I, imaging, but you've got to also identify that and how you know that because this is where the, the lesion is, this is what we would expect to see, and, and this is what I did see. Well, why and how did you come to that conclusion? Not just because the neurologist told you so, and yet there have been some case studies that have been submitted with that kind of information. Well, the neurologist said this is what the diagnosis is, so that's what I'm going to go off of and just say, yep, this is what they have. Yeah. Well, you know, in my case, my patient uh, actually had a venous infarction. And it was of, I won't go into too much detail, it was of a particular vein. And I could only find two very brief references uh, that mentioned uh, individuals with this type of lesion. So I didn't really have any evidence to say uh, this person's symptoms are consistent with this lesion in terms of what's been reported. But I could go as, I could say, well, the evidence isn't out there, but given the lesion location and given some other things that we understand in terms of what this area of cortex seems to be doing, that this person's symptoms were or weren't consistent with that, right? In other words, is as clinicians, there's many, many times the answer isn't out there or it's not given to us directly. And I think that's really where we have an opportunity, right? I would highlight opportunity to demonstrate our ability to think abstractly. and Which and, I think also speaks to your expertise because you're tying in the neurology um, constructs with your hypothesis, and yet this is what's actually being um, observed. Right, right. Assessment methods and test results. Uh, the first sentence here, this section includes specific standardized and or non-standardized assessment procedures used with rationales for their use, um, including reporting the the, the finding, the data, the findings, etc. Anybody want to start here? I'm not going to try and stay away from choosing who goes first here. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to. I don't want to pick on Katie anymore. <laughs> yeah, stop picking on me, Mike. No, um, Gail, I think you had mentioned um, some really 
great ideas in the past related to this. I've also been on, um, I've been a member with you on some of these review committees and I've always appreciated your input and, and feedback to the applicant related to this section. So. So I should have something to say. <laughs> I guess I, I, I think that was kind of a lead in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the retirement assessment. Uh, yeah. Um, again, I want to emphasize that I want to know what what the clinician did, what their hypotheses were, what was the information they needed in order to differentially diagnose those hypotheses. What were all the other factors that they considered besides the assessment of the impairment and how those influenced their decisions about treatment. But I also want to know, you know, in a perfect world, I would have also done this, but it wasn't mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And yeah, that's, that's, I think, a key point because we, we recognize that many, if not most clinicians don't really have the time, aren't given the time to do sometimes all of the assessments they need to do to really confirm a hypothesis that they have about this person with aphasia's underlying impairments are primarily, there's a semantic component going on here. We can see patterns of errors and things like that, and we can form that hypothesis, but we may not have the time or in ret, you know, we just didn't do it. And in retrospect, we know we should. That was true for me also in my case. I, again, after reflecting on the case, there were areas that I would have liked to have tested had I had the time and also just the awareness at the time. And I, but I was trans, I was, I was transparent about that and saying that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, we're not all perfect, and um, although you're, you as an applicant are attempting to show us your expertise in a certain neurologic communication disorder, we don't expect you to be always correct, I guess, or, you know, there are different ways to look at the same elephant um, depending on how you want to assess, and we like to see your process of, you know what, I could have done this, um, this is why I didn't use this assessment, or this is the reason I did use this assessment. We, we don't expect you to be perfect on this. Um, we, we want to see your thinking process. Well, and I think everybody has touched on this in one way or another, but some of the other comments I got from other committee members in terms of kind of a central theme that popped up again and again was that they wanted to see rationales for yes. the kinds of decisions and conclusions that that people were were writing about and and sometimes i think i've noticed that that uh, those rationales are sometimes a little bit too concrete, and I'll, I'll just give you a, the kind of a simple example here where a, a, a candidate might say that, that this was the correct treatment because the person got better. Mm -hmm. What you probably want to say is, is that I applied this treatment, the person got better, 
and this is why I think this treatment helped the person. That's that's a very different way of approaching the the discussion. I think um, it's really important that we are not expecting in a case study for people to be applying single subject research designs in order to be able to empirically tell me that the treatment was the cause of improvement. Um, right. Because that's just not possible in normal clinical practice. Yeah. We're not asking for a research study here. Right. Um, so in fact, the case in which the clinician claims that it was their treatment would send up red flags to me because they don't appreciate um, all the other variables that are not controlled in that situation that right. could also be influencing outcomes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Edie, in your case that you wrote about, um, what was the, uh, how was the, we're kind of, we're moving forward here into management, but I think that's okay. Um, what kind of outcomes were you able to, to collect and how close could you get to the ideal way of collecting data, you know, establish a stable baseline, right. all that kind of stuff? Well, it was, um, it was a patient I saw, an outpatient, so I did have some, um, I guess, the, the luxury of doing some extended testing with him, and so was able to take a few minutes to do a little bit of probing at the beginning of a session before I did the treatment mm -hmm. um, to be able to kind of track that throughout his treatment. And so that led me to be able to say, well, here's, here's what I saw over the course of time. And here's where he started, here's where he ended. And so given the ability to do that, and I think that outpatient setting having more time, but I know it's also doable in an inpatient setting that to do a probe really should could take a few minutes at the beginning of a session. Yeah. Um, and so looking to see that kind of tracking from the beginning to the end can add to the um, how you're evaluating how how well is the treatment working. Yeah. Did you plan for your case, your case study? In other words, did you say, you know, you got a consult and you said, okay, this is the person I'm going to use for my case study? Or did you see them? Um, like I saw my person and I was completely done and I, and I went back and just retrospectively said, okay. So I, all of my warts were really there and for everyone to see. Right. Um, right. How was it for so you? So I had actually seen the the person in one setting in a day rehab setting and then I switched roles so then I was able to see him again so I was kind of following him so I thought that might be a good person okay that makes sense yeah um, because I had been able to was able to follow him a little bit longer than somebody could I think it is helpful to to try to think about a person ahead of time you know, what is there a treatment that you would like to go in depth and really evaluate it with a person could be one way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. 
it does help to have that luxury gail I, have a, I guess I want to pose a question to, to my colleagues, and that is, to me, the case is the smallest variable here. It's, it's all of the reflection <laughs> about what was and what wasn't done that is what's yes. most important to me. So I would say, it doesn't matter to me what case you choose, just choose one, yes, and then right. start telling me about... You know, here's what I did, here's what I should have done, here's what, you know, I would have done, and these were the things. So I, I worry that people will hesitate to um, uh, apply because they, oh, maybe they work in an ICU unit. Yeah. You know, what, what standardized test are they going to be administering in an ICU? Well, tell me about yeah. that. And tell yeah. me what your reasoning is for what you do do. Right. Um, That's right. I, I see no case would be inappropriate for the case study. Right. right, and I've gotten that comment from other colleagues is they feel like they don't have enough time to do the evaluation that they need to do and they, don't, they won't see that person for right. long enough treatment sessions. Right. Um, and so if that's what's preventing people from applying, then maybe we need to do a little bit more education. Yeah, yes. yeah. No, I think that's a a great point and it's highlighting this theme that it's not so much about you know whether you you gave the right test whether you came up with the right diagnosis whether you chose the right treatment whether your candidate got your patient got better or not it's do you recognize what's going what was happening there and what was the right direction, what could have been done better. You're right, it's all about demonstrating the, the knowledge and the understanding. It, and, and I do get a sense from some of the cases that maybe there is an implied message that part of being board certified is showing that you're an effective clinician, right? So yes. you have to present a case where the person got better. Yeah. It looks like we lost Gail. It, um, I see a message here that she needed to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've 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 gone a, a fair distance here. Um, I'm going to look at. If I could just interrupt, Mike. I'm sorry to interject yeah. here. Um, mm -hmm. For potential applicants who, who listen to this podcast, I strongly recommend, this was something I did um, or, or would have done even if I wasn't at the university setting, but in order to determine how to write a, a, a case study that wasn't just a clinical report about a client, was I went and looked at journal articles of clinical case studies or case studies to see how they're written, how they're formatted, um, what kind of information is important to include in the different sections. And, you know, current applicants, I know they may not have access to all of the journals out there, but ASHA has a wealth of journals available on their website that they could use as a guide for how to write a case study that isn't just a clinical report about X client. And so I just I did want to highlight that that sometimes people say, well, I don't understand what you want when you say case study. What is that? How is that different than a a client report that I would write 
to send to the doctor. Um, so that's I do want to really stress that is you in this day and age you have access to ASHA journals online and everybody's got to be an ASHA member or certified by ASHA um, in order to apply for board certification so use that website you know yeah. go back to handouts from conferences and find references for that specific technique or, or therapy and look at the the articles yeah well you know having access to peer-reviewed journals is is a problem for some clinicians mm -hmm. um, I I would suggest besides the ASHA journals which everyone has access to that let's say you're want to write about a person with aphasia that you saw that it might be helpful to find somebody who does have institutional access and maybe yes. find a list of uh, articles that you would like. You know, I know if there, anybody sent yeah. me, I would do that. Edie, go ahead. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, I, I do think through public universities, anybody can access through their websites. Like you can access PubMed through a public university. Um, so there are other resources um, yeah, yeah. that you can access articles. Yeah, I think you could, I mean, I think people would be able to find articles. I'm not sure if they would actually be able to to download them, but I don't know. From my understanding of it, that you can. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think the the last thing in, in the to, to bring up here and this is just because it was such a common comment from some of the other committee members, was the final section of the case study and, and uh, probably the most important section in some way, and that is the quality assessment statement. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the first sentence there is the candidate should discuss why the treatment was or was not successful as well as why and how he or she might have done things differently. I don't think that reflection has to just be restricted to this portion of the case, the written case. I think particularly Gail has suggested that that needs to be occurring throughout. But this was the section where I really kind of said, here were the things I could have done better. Mm -hmm. Here were the things that I could have done if I had more time. Here, here are the questions that I still have about this case that I'm not. I I still don't have an answer for. I think that's mm -hmm. a that's yeah. a very reasonable conclusion to say. I don't know. Yes, and here's so what I don't know. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean you're less of an expert because you said I don't know. Yeah. why something happened or did not happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, we've, we've run our time here. Edie and uh, Katie, thank you very much for- Oh, thanks. Uh, You're welcome. For, for... And, and my email address is on the website with um, the certification information. Um, so if anybody wants to email me questions, I'm more than happy to answer them um, 
and if they are specific to a certain disorder, I may seek out additional guidance from those who maybe are more expert in that area than I might be. Um, and also, uh, Mike, mm -hmm. Michael Beadle will be the uh, chair transitioning to that position in January 2017. So if some of you are thinking about applying, but you want to give yourself a few more months to think about it, Mike will be the new chair in January of 2017. And um, I know he is more than willing to guide and mentor uh, potential applicants as well. I mean, we want to we want you to succeed. So please understand that when you receive the the written feedback from your committee, it is not meant to be critical. It is meant to be constructive. Um, sometimes there's been hurt feelings by um, applicants and thinking that they're being personally attacked or their um, clinical expertise is being called into question, and, and that's not it at all. We are trying to help you become the expert that you want to be able to say that you are. This is a, a rigorous process but very rewarding and, and I don't mean financially because for me I didn't get any kind of pain increase because I was board certified but it's professionally rewarding to me and it was a personal goal of mine. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I, I think that uh, the, the process for me was difficult but, but very worthwhile and I grew a lot from being put under that kind of pressure or whatever. Um, uh, so it, it marked a, a milestone in my clinical growth, you know, one of those points where I felt myself elevating my game a little bit. And so it's a great opportunity. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, again, all of the information that we've talked about is available on the ANCDS website at ancds.org.